0: Hear the reading from the New Testament from James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses, With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. and speak to God.
1: One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, as we can all attest, after this past year, we, we cannot take the privilege of, of meeting together in this place for granted. And of course, it's the word of God that creates and crafts God's church, that calls and collects us together. And it's the word of God that we're preparing to look at now. So as we do, let's come together in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us. We thank you for what it promises us. We thank you for how it orients us in your good and gracious world. I pray, Father, that you would be with the words that follow, that they would be faithful to your intent for this passage, and that through your Spirit, you would work them deeply into our hearts, into our heads, and into our hands. And we ask this, Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, the present passage has a lot to say about words about the things we say to one another, and even about the things that we say to God himself. And so this passage has a lot to say about community and the conversations that bind us together or that pull us apart. And given the fiery rhetoric that blasts from our speakers and fills our computer screens, this passage seems especially Pertinent to many of our modern problems. And towards that end, James goes very deep. He forces us to examine more than just our own words. James calls us to consider the very contexts in which we communicate and to the particular privileges and responsibilities demanded of us as humans that speak before God, with others, and in creation. And towards that end, I want to look at this passage under three headings. First, I want us to take a hard look at ourselves, at our modern lack of a conversational context. And then that's going to bring what James has to say in high relief as we look at creation itself as a proper conversational context, and then what it means, thirdly, for us as Christians to converse, to speak to each other in light of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our first point, our modern lack of a conversational context. And if we, if we think about it, in our modern world, we have a very strange relationship to words. In some senses, we are more flippant with our words than we've ever been before, but we respond to words with perhaps more ferocity, with more regularity in our ferocity than we've ever done before. We speak both more superficially, yet we submit these superficial words to an unprecedented amount of public scrutiny we're in a bit of a paradoxical phenomenon. So one philosopher, D.C. Schindler, looking at this, he asks an important question. Do we take words too seriously, or do we not take our words seriously enough? And in light of these contrasting realities, perhaps we're not really sure what to say. As Schindler himself writes, quote, On the one hand, we appear to trivialize speech in a manner that would have astonished earlier ages. Not only do we broadcast every thought without discretion, but we do so with patent disregard for form. On the other hand, we appear to absolutize speech in an equally astonishing way, extracting a person's word or phrases in complete ignorance of concrete and historical context loading them with a weight that exceeds their evident carrying capacity. And in particular, what he has in his crosshairs is social media. And of course, social media in our modern world has become a, a major, if not perhaps the, the primary mode of public discourse. And again, social media fosters a strange dynamic where we are able to share every flippant thought that might come to our mind, but all the same, we subject these flippant thoughts to the utmost public scrutiny. So as those who post to social media, for example, we need not attend to wisdom or discretion. And as those who read those posts, we need not attend to civility and charity. At least that's the temptation that social media presents to us. Schindler speaks of such speech as fully abstracted speech. In the fullest sense, it is speech taken out of its context. When we read a tweet, we need not converse with the person who made the tweet. At most, perhaps we see their face on a computer screen. We don't need to situate the statement within a longer passage. We just look at the isolated statement itself. And we're tempted not to ask for a clarification, but to look to the responses of of others and mimic their approval or disapproval. And this is a problem because context is very important for humans. Context gives us the condition and the constraints of the meaning of our words. For example, if I say it's charging, depending on whether I'm standing next to a plugged-in phone or standing in front of a charging rhino, it's charging can mean very, very different things. And cultural contexts are very important, too. When I was living in, in Vietnam, as Americans do, I said thank you for absolutely every nice thing that my Vietnamese friends did for me. Until at one point, a Vietnamese friend said, would you stop saying thank you? He said, you say thank you to persons who you don't expect to do nice things for you. So when you tell me thank you, what I hear is you are not a close friend. So what I was trying to communicate was gratitude. But what I was actually communicating to him was a distance that existed between him and me. Words Human words need a context. But when we think about social media and much of the electronic discourse which we inhabit in our modern world, it's very contextless. It might actually be the most contextless form of communication that humans have so far developed. And Schindler pushes this further, talking about the kind of disposition that it can serve to foster in us as readers, as hearers, as interpreters. He describes this disposition as, quote, an unrestrained readiness to take every electronic utterance as a definitive pronouncement, which does not require a patient attentiveness to his origin, to the nature and history of the person speaking, to the circumstances that bore it. This is the temptation of electronic communication to to separate us from our context, to, to separate us from the conditions and the constraints of human life. It's about as minimal of a context as you can imagine. This isn't to say that social media and these forms of electronic communication don't have a place. I'm not saying that. But I do want us to step back and ask, are these the best forms of communication of discourse for our most personal and serious conversations. Can they actually work to support our deepest relationships? But we can go further. Much of the electronic conversation, be it social media or um, the plethora of news sites, news channels that we can go to, they actually pull us out of our own context. What researchers have found is the more we have access to this kind of electronic news, the less we're actually engaged in our own immediate context. A 2020 Atlantic article looks at some of the findings of a recent Pew Research Center study. While most Americans are very interested in politics, most Americans also report belonging to zero organizations and having worked zero times with others to solve an actual community problem problem. We can also make this more concrete. The novelist Barbara Kingsolver, she she relates an experience of meeting her neighbor, and her neighbor was surprised that weeks after the fact, she had not heard of, of JFK Jr.'s tragic death in the plane crash. And she reflected on this surprise of her neighbor, and she said the following, quote, "...it seems somewhat voyeuristic and also absurd to expect JFK Jr.'s death should change my life any more than a recent death in my family affected the Kennedys. On the matter of individual tragic deaths, I believe that those in my own neighborhood are the ones I need to attend to first, by means of casseroles and whatever else I can offer. I also believe it's possible to be so overtaken and stupefied by the tragedies of the world that we don't have any time or energy left for those closer to home." to the hurts we should take as our own. So the danger here is a communication without a context that actually pulls us out of our own context. We might know the birthdays of a number of public figures, but do we know how many neighbors are, how many kids our neighbors actually have? The danger here is to be a kind of people afloat, at sea, receiving messages in bottles that the current carries in from nowhere special and written by no one in particular. But we can go even further still. There's a sense in which all the words that we speak have been taken out of their context. Remember, words need a context to mean to do the things that they do when i say thank you i'm operating against a whole cultural context but what about that overarching context what about the existential context the context that we inhabit as human beings Philosoph- uh, philosopher charles taylor makes an interesting point here and he says well we don't really have an overarching context anymore which is a new and novel situation. And that presents a new problem, a new crisis, what Taylor calls the crisis of meaning. He says, moderns can anxiously doubt whether life has meaning or wonder what its meaning is. That's because meaning needs a background. When I say it's charging and you see me holding the plugged-in phone, you know what I mean. But the question is, what background can we look to when we say things like, It's good to love and serve your neighbor. What do you mean by good? What's the background that gives good meaning? And why is it good to serve my neighbor? Is it good to serve my neighbor because it makes me feel happy? Is it good because it makes me feel good? Is it good because my emotions make it good? Are my emotions the criterion for for what is good? is it good because it keeps my neighbor alive? But but what if my ultimate background tells me that the only reason I'm here is because my ancient ancestors lived, whereas their competitors died? Why not see my neighbor as an evolutionary competitor? Well, that background can't give me any adequate meaning for good. So Taylor shows us both that not only do we not agree on the ultimate background, the ultimate context, but a number of these contexts are not able to give us any real meaning of good. And so there's a specter of meaninglessness that haunts everything that we say and do. Take, for example, the Supreme Court statement that we looked at last week. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Again, this may or may not be a proper statement to govern a pluralistic society. I'm I'm not a political scientist. I'm not making a political statement, but I'm looking at this statement theologically. And strictly speaking, there is no context here. There's just a bunch of little context. Every single person becomes their own context. And with such small contexts, we can't provide the meanings that make sense of either our deepest desires or of the most natural intuitions of the human heart. If we are the source of meaning, then we've eliminated any greater context that we ourselves would find ourselves within. And if that's the case, then we really do have a crisis of meaning. If that's the case, life really is meaningless. And deep down, we know this. We know that we are distracting ourselves from the questions that are going to make us look at those bigger, overarching, existential backgrounds and contexts. Those questions that would make us wonder, where does this meaning ultimately come from? Leigh Stein writes the following in a recent New York Times editorial. Quote, There is a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. Instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens might be distracting us from them. Contrary to what you might have seen on Instagram, our purpose is not to optimize our one wild and precious life. It's time to search for meaning beyond the electric church that keeps us addicted to our phones and alienated from our closest kin, end quote. So that's where we are. That explains a lot of discourse that we find in the modern world. So then the question is, what does that have to do with James? James. And I want to argue that it actually has quite a bit to do with James. And that brings us to our second point, creation as conversational context. Look with me at James chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison." One thing we've talked about a lot in James is James is operating with a background of creation. The James is New Testament wisdom literature. James is putting forth wisdom, this notion of living rightly before God with others in the created order. And here again, we find James directing us to the creation account. Because James says some strange things here. What's this connection between the tongue and the? taming why would he bring these things together look with me at genesis 2 19 through 20 the author of genesis writes now out of the ground the lord god had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of The field. So, what we see here is humanity not just taming creatures, but interestingly, we see humanity taming creatures with the tongue. The tongue is an essential means by which humanity tamed these creatures. Naming plays a very important role here. God presents all of the creatures to Adam and he says, Look at these. And Adam studies them. Adam loves them. Adam understands their proper place within creation. And because Adam does these things, Adam names them. Adam names them by attending fully and wholly to his context. In naming the creatures, Adam tames the creatures. And by naming the creatures, he helps to maintain each creature's proper place in the created order. In naming these creatures, Adam assumes his God-ordained responsibility to steward creation, to steward the many good and gracious gifts that God has given him. As God commands humanity in Genesis 1, 29, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth. Language is meant to root us in the created world, to root us in our context. And God shows us that naming itself is an essential means by which we steward creation. That language itself is a response to God's good and gracious gifts in creation. That language is a primary means by which we order the world rightly to God and even speak of our proper place within the created order. Language roots us in the context of creation. But this also cuts both ways. And theologian Oliver O'Donovan points this out. Humanity's unique relation to the world means that we fulfill our role in the universe by discerning and interpreting what we see about us. And language is a primary means by which we do that but there's an inverse side here. There's a danger that comes along with this privilege. O'Donovan says that humanity alone, quote, can suffer the fate of living in an illusory universe constructed by his own mind. We alone can live in total illusion. We alone can reject our creational context and its words by which we do this. Remember, James tells us that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Full of deadly poison. And we should hear in that image a reference to a poisonous snake, to a serpent, and more deeply, to the serpent of Genesis 3. What did the serpent do to Adam and Eve? Do we find in Genesis 3 an epic battle, an epic struggle? Do we find in Genesis 3 the serpent using extraordinary means to convince Adam and Eve to follow him and rebel against God? No. The serpent simply speaks. All of the woes in the world can trace themselves back to that one conversation, That is the power of words, and that is what James is warning us of. As James writes in chapter 3, 5, and 6, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. What do we find in Genesis 3? One conversation, setting on fire the entire course of human history and set on fire by hell itself, by Satan himself, the serpent. All unrighteousness that we find in the world flows back from that one evil use of words. Recall that in our modern world, we have a crisis of meaning. We're not sure about the ultimate context, and many of the candidates that we provide can't really ground the meaning that we hope for. We don't really have a way to make sense of the world. Well, we find here that creation itself is that context, that creation is the very good context, and that language is at the very heart of rightly rooting us in that context. That's why the serpent's question is so dangerous. Did God really say? Did God really say? The whole human life is a response to God and his good and gracious gifts in creation. But the question, did God really say, is an invitation out of that context. God speaks everything into existence. And God, with his words, commissions us to be the stewards of creation, to give us certain privileges and responsibilities. God did say, and because God did say, everything that was made was made. And because God did say, he has given us a proper and right place within all that he has made. But to ask the question, did God say, is to pull us out of our context and all of the responsibilities that we have as stewards of creation. It's to pull us out of the overall context by which we're meant to make sense of the world, of everything that we say and everything that we do. Recall again the Supreme Court statement. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. This just is humanity without a context. No conditions, no constraints. No responsibility imposed on me by anyone outside of myself. No one can make a claim upon me, not God, not my neighbor, not anything in all of creation. To do so would be to limit my ability to define meaning on my own terms. And we find right away how this question of did God say pulls us away from our neighbor. We have to remember that the whole account in Genesis 3 is not just Eve, but it's Adam standing next to Eve. He's next to her the whole time. At no point does he try to stop her. What he does is kind of step back and he waits to see What's going to happen when she eats the fruit? It's a bit cruel. He's waiting to see, is she going to die? Can I eat this fruit too? And once she takes a bite, once he sees that she seems okay, then he finally eats. He's treating his neighbor, his very wife, as a kind of guinea pig. Recall that our move to living online extracts us from our local context, from the responsibilities therein, to our neighbors, to our spouses, to our friends, to our families, to our communities. We can be so informed nationally that we are no locally good. We're uprooted from our here and our now to the privileges and responsibilities to which God has called us in this place. We might mourn the passing of some public figure, but do we know what our dying neighbor is actually suffering from? Again, there's a place for this kind of media, but the danger is similar to that of the serpent's question, to pull us out of our context, to pull us out of our responsibilities and privileges, to pull us out of our families, our churches, our neighborhoods, our communities, and the particular context that they are, to pull us out of the particular plot of creation that God himself has called us to steward. And I'm speaking just as much to myself as anyone else. We have to commit to wherever God has placed us and to whoever God has placed us with. For every tweet, make sure you have two actual conversations with a friend or family member. For every nationally syndicated article, digest one local article as well. For every public figure's birthday that you know, make sure to scratch the birthdays of two neighbors on your calendar. And every time you use the word good, think about the larger context of creation that gives that word meaning. How creation itself and good actions themselves reflect God and his good and gracious purposes. And all of this is as much as to say, live gratefully and responsibly in the context that God himself has placed you. And that brings us to our third and final point, conversing in light of Christ. Look with me at James 3, 9 through 12. James says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What James is doing here is calling attention to the words that we speak to our neighbors, showing that these words are a kind of diagnostic of our own heart. He also presents this image of the mouth as a fount from which pours forth either fresh water that gives life or salt water that gives death. Remember, too, that the image of Psalm 1, as we've talked about, is hovering in the background of this entire letter. James is telling us that our words are like a stream that flow upon our neighbors, that flow upon our fellow trees. Are our mouths giving them fresh water to nourish their roots, to refresh their souls? or salt water that makes them wither. So then the question is, how are we to speak to those around us so that fresh water issues from our mouth, so that we speak life to those around us? And interestingly, Adam himself gives us a way forward. We have to remember that Eve was not named before the fall, but Eve was actually named after the fall. As we find in Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. In Genesis 3.15, before this naming, we find that God promises Adam and Eve a seed, a seed that will defeat the serpent, that will crush the serpent's work and will undo the lies of the serpent. And interestingly, after failing so badly, Adam responds rightly to this promise. Despite the curse of death that now falls upon creation, God promises to bring life, and Adam believes it. He names his wife Eve, Mother of the Living. He's naming her by faith, by trust in God's word. He's speaking, he's using language in accordance with the promise. As theologian Edmund Clowney writes, such a name stands in contrast to the sentence of death God had pronounced. But it was spoken not in defiance, but as Adam's claim on the promise of God. As Adam speaks to Eve here, he's affirming both God's promise and her particular role in that promise. As he speaks to Eve, he's affirming both his love for God and his love for his neighbor, for his wife. Or more precisely, he's affirming his love for the neighbor. In God. And of course, the seed here is Christ himself, the very word of God made flesh, the one who was fully God and fully human, the one who is both God's address to us and our perfect response back to God, the one who is both the great I am and the perfect Lord here am I, the one rightly and responsibly rooted in his context. The Son speaks as both God and human. For in Christ, God comes into creation and fulfills himself the responsibilities that creation demands. He lives the perfect human life at a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular family. Because strictly speaking, there is no other kind of human life. Of course, on the cross... He himself pays the penalties for the lies we tell, for all the ways that we have misused words, for the ways that we have rejected the responsibilities of our neighbors and certainly the responsibilities to God. He was executed on false charges. He paid because of the lies of lies of others. But he also paid for the lies of others, our lies, each of our lies. We've shrugged off the responsibilities of our context, but God has met them in Christ. And we've seen this promise fulfilled. Adam responded to this promise and named his wife Eve. How then are we to respond to this promise and speak to those in the church, to speak to our neighbor? Remember that James speaks of words as water. So how are we to speak fresh water to one another? As Adam, how are we to speak into the life of the neighbor that affirms both our love of God and our neighbor? That affirms the gifts that God has given this person and the ways you see God working in this person, that the way that God is working in this person to bring about his purposes. That's what Adam did with Eve. And that's what we need to do for one another. That is how we are called to name one another. And I want to leave you with a closing illustration. C.S. Lewis, in reflecting on the death of Charles Williams, writes a very profound passage, and it's a reflection on how the death of Charles Williams actually affected his relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien, here referred to as Ron. And Lewis writes the following, quote, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, now that I have him to myself, I have less of Ronald." There's something inside of Tolkien that only Williams' sense of humor could bring out. And now that Williams is gone, there's a part of Tolkien that will lay dormant for the rest of his life. As Lewis laments, I have less of Ronald. Lewis is telling us that we need a community to become our full selves, that every person in this congregation is specially gifted to call out certain parts of every other member in this congregation. And this is both a privilege and a responsibility that the context of this particular church, One Ancient Hope, places upon you. We need you. We need you, each of you, right here in this congregation with these people in this city. We need you to speak specifically to the persons in this room in response to the promise of the gospel, to draw them out, to make them bigger, to make them bigger than they think they can currently be. Bigger because what the promise of the gospel tells them you are the church, and so you are a part of this promise. You are a means through which God aims to call the whole person into activity. So let pour from your mouth the fresh water of the gospel and not the salt water of a world isolated and abstracted in electronic enclaves so that this church body right here, this particular grove of trees, will be refreshed and will be nourished. There is no sweeter, no more loving word than God's promise of Christ in the gospel. And so let us learn to speak this very word to one another. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the good gift of language. We thank you that you have started this conversation You've started this conversation in creation, and you've reoriented this conversation with the gospel. Help us to respond rightly to you, to love you, and to speak well to our neighbor, to speak fresh water that grows their roots and nourishes their souls. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the seed that you promised to Adam and that
0: you brought to us as your very self. Amen.